the main headline in yesterday's Daily Telegraph announced, thousands of A-grade pupils face rejection. Leading universities have announced that the applications of thousands of students will be rejected despite the fact that they have received three or more A-levels at A-grade. Apparently Cambridge University alone expects to reject 5,000 such pupils. As I look back, I'm glad that I'm not trying to get into university today. No one likes being rejected. And especially when you've done nothing to merit such rejection. But surprising though that may be, it pales into insignificance when you compare it with the treatment that Jesus, the Son of God, received at the hands of his own people. For hundreds of years they've been waiting for their Messiah promised by their prophets. Perhaps they'd forgotten that one of those prophets, Isaiah by name, had foretold that he would be despised and rejected. And those two words certainly summarised the reception Jesus received from his own people that he'd grown up with in a place called Nazareth in northern Israel. Yet it was really very surprising considering all that Jesus had done during this past year. His powerful preaching, his marvellous miracles, were the talk of the nation, and his fame would have preceded him to his home village of Nazareth. Surely, on his return home, he would be acclaimed by his own people, by his own family. But no, the narrow-minded Nazarenes couldn't see beyond the background of Jesus, and they rejected him. They said, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given to him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Familiarity bred contempt. And they took offence at him, concludes Mark. The Greek word literally means they were scandalised by him. And in response, Jesus quotes a well-known proverb of his day. Only in his hometown, among his relatives... And in his own house is a prophet without honour. The word honour, the root meaning of the word honour, is to place a value or a price on something or someone. And the people of Nazareth and the family of Jesus didn't rate him very highly. They rejected him. And what is true of Jesus is also true of his followers who represent him. And Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for this kind of rejection as he sends them out on their first mission. And on the return from this mission, Jesus reminds his readers what had happened to John the Baptist. Uh, Mark reminds his readers what had happened to John the Baptist, the last and greatest of the prophets, who was also rejected and paid the ultimate price for speaking God's word. Jesus and all those associated with him are prophets without honour as far as this world is concerned. Hence our title, Prophets Without Honour. And so this morning, let's look together at the passage that Nori read for us in Mark 6, 1-29. It will help to have a Bible in front of you as we look at this together. Page, it's still on page 1008, if you have a pew Bible. And we begin then with the rejection of Jesus, which you'll find in verses 1 through 6. From early childhood until he reached the age of around 30, the Gospels tell us, Jesus had lived in Nazareth. Nazareth was more of a large village than a town, with little to commend it. 
Indeed, Nathaniel, one of the first followers of Jesus, on being told that Jesus was the Messiah and came from Nazareth, said, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Even allowing for neighbouring rivalries, Nathaniel came from the next door village called Cana. It was probably a fair comment. You will look in vain for any references in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, for Nazareth. However, not surprisingly, it's not the pedigree of their village that causes the people of Nazareth to reject Jesus. Rather, it was what we might call over-familiarity with Jesus. They knew this Jesus. He was one of them. And they focused particularly on two things. His trade and his family. First of all, his trade. They say, isn't this the carpenter? The Greek word translated carpenter is Greek word tektone. It literally means a craftsman in wood, stone or metal. Traditionally, Jesus was regarded as being a craftsman in wood. And every village like Nazareth would have a local tectone. He was the guy that you went to if you needed something repaired. Or if you needed him to make you something special, a piece of furniture maybe. Or to help you with building your house. And Jesus learned this trade from Joseph, of course, who acted as his father. And if it seems likely, tradition has it that Joseph had died when Jesus was relatively young, then Jesus sustained this ministry right through until around the age of 30. Often think about this, then there's lots of us here who aren't 30 yet. And some of us get quite frustrated because we aren't out uh, saving the world exactly yet. Just think our Lord took till the age of 30 before he even embarked on his ministry. But there may be more to the question, isn't this the carpenter, than just their familiarity with Jesus. In ancient times, it was unthinkable that anyone who was a teacher or a philosopher would soil their hands by working with them. A teacher in Israel would have sat for many years at the foot of a rabbi or a teacher to learn, not in the workshop of a carpenter. So even after being amazed by his teaching and hearing of his amazing miracles, his people in Nazareth simply ask, isn't he just a carpenter? They can see no further than his trade and his family. And note the particular reference here to Mary, to Mary's son. This is very unusual. Again, in ancient times, if you referred to people, you always referred to them by their father's name. You'd expect him to be called Joseph's son. And it may be, and not all scholars have agreed on this, that Mary's son is a derogatory remark casting a slur upon the legitimacy of Jesus. Certainly it was one that would be and is still thrown at the person of Jesus today. And the reference to the brothers and sisters of Jesus, despite Roman Catholic claims about the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she didn't have any more children or relationships with Joseph, almost certainly the reference is to his real later brothers and sisters. The point the people of Nazareth are making is that Jesus is just one of them, he's just an ordinary person. Oh, he may have done these amazing things, but that's not enough for them. Uh, Donald English comments, something about his being one of them became the ground not for supporting him, <coughs> but by being, of, but being offended by him. Everyone knew Jesus, yet no one, as far as we know, when he was growing up, said, this young man has the makings of a Messiah. Even the teaching and miracles of Jesus as we've seen in Mark's Gospel, although they produce amazement and surprise, do not produce faith, much to the amazement or astonishment of Jesus. But what it says, Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Verse 6. Very strong word used here. 
literally means to hit in the mouth. Sort of common slang with a horrible word, gobsmack, but it, that's the kind of word that's used here. It's actually only used in one of the places in the Gospels of Jesus being amazed. Quite significantly, a Roman centurion came and asked Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus said, okay, I'll go with you. And the centurion said, no, no, don't bother. I'm a man under authority. You just say the word and I know it'll happen. And we read in the Gospels that Jesus was amazed at this man's faith. And he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith in Israel. No, he didn't. Certainly not among his own family and people in Nazareth. And the result was that whereas the servant of the centurion was healed, Jesus, we read, during the time he was in Nazareth, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now, of course, the statement he couldn't do any miracles doesn't mean he was physically impossible or spiritually unable to do any miracles there. Rather, it tells us, then and now, how Jesus chooses to work. He works in response to believing faith. He's not one of these kind of magicians that you see on the television who does amazing tricks with people he just bumps into in the street. No, you have to have a relationship with him as a person. Again, Donald English in the Bible Speaks Today commentary uh, comments very helpfully. But he says, Jesus is not free to be a magic worker. As the word will not produce spiritual growth where the capacity for the response is barren, choked or scorched, as we saw in the parable of the sower, so the presence of Jesus will not produce miracles in the atmosphere of total unbelief or resistance. Faith, is the capacity or willingness to receive what God wants to give, while unbelief is the willful refusal to receive what God wants to give, despite the evidence. And it all hinges on our response to Jesus. So let's stop talking about the people in Nazareth, and let's talk about the people in Charlotte Chapel this morning. What is your response to Jesus? Yes, Jesus is fully human. He is the son of Mary. But he is also fully divine, He is at the same time the Son of God. And throughout history you'll discover that people have rejected Jesus on one of these two grounds. Either they have doubted his humanity or they have doubted his divinity. Today, far more frequently in our society, people say, yes, Jesus was an amazing man, a marvellous teacher, uh, did all these fantastic things, I've got a great respect for him, but they don't believe that he really is the Son of God. But the evidence is there far more than the people of Nazareth had because we know the story of the death of Jesus his resurrection from the grave and to reject him and this calls for a response on our part the key here is not just that the people of Nazareth rejected Jesus have we rejected Jesus some of you have been coming to this church for a long time this is particularly applies to those of you who have grown up in Charlotte Chapel which is a great blessing and privilege although you may grumble about it sometimes to your parents and friends believe me growing up in a Christian family in a Bible believing church is a great privilege but with it can come a familiarity that breeds contempt and you kind of see this it's very strange because I grew up in a Christian family in a very good church small church but you can take these things for granted. And then someone comes in, some of you folk, it's great to see you've came in from Christianity Explored. And it's all really fantastic and exciting. And there's people there who've been sat in this church for years and years, and it's just over-familiar to them. And they know all the stories. They could probably stand and preach this sermon, probably better than I can. But do you really... Have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you responded to him? 
Have you rejected or received Christ? On this hangs your eternal destiny. And the quality of your life here and now on this earth. In the beginning of his gospel, John in that fantastic prologue, speaking about Jesus, the word who was with God, created all things, he speaks about this rejection, John 1, 10 and 11. He says, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The people of Israel valued Jesus so little that when given the choice between Jesus and a murderer, they said, give us Barabbas, away with him, crucify him. That's the value they placed on him. They rejected him. But John goes on to speak about those who did receive Jesus. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And when you receive Christ, you come into his family, you receive his Holy Spirit, you're born again of the Spirit of God, and it's this wonderful assurance that you belong to Christ, so I ask you this morning, have you rejected Christ or have you received Christ? Let me put it this way. What value do you place on Jesus? What does he mean to you? Let me just give you a simple example. When you hear people abusing the name of Jesus and using it as a swear word, does it hurt you? Do you wince? Do you ever say anything? Writing to Gentile Christians, some wonderful words in 1 Peter. Peter the Apostle writes, You've come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. That's 1 Peter 2, 4. And he goes on to say that Jesus is precious to you. This is 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. Now to you who believe, this stone, Jesus, is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Literally, in Greek, it says a rock of offense. It's the same root word where it says the people were offended by it. It's the word scandalon, from which we derive scandal. Those who reject Jesus are scandalized by him, the real Jesus. But those who receive him, to them, Jesus is precious. It's kind of an emotional question, really, but... Can I ask you, is Jesus precious to you? Does he mean everything to you? What value do you place upon him? Or have you rejected him? Scandalized by him? Offended by him? So Mark records that Jesus continued to teach from village to village, and then he records how Jesus sends out the twelve disciples on their first mission and prepares them for the fact that they may not be welcome, but in fact he prepares them for rejection. So look secondly, and I'm looking at it from this particular perspective, and there are many ways of looking at this passage, this is just one of them. Look at the rejection of the disciples of Jesus in verses 7 to 13. Somewhat surprising actually to find that Jesus at this stage sends out these twelve disciples on their first mission. We've already seen how little they really understand of who Jesus is, how they constantly get things wrong, how they've got very little faith, and yet Jesus sends them out. I have to, I had to have a right think, and this is replies to me in, in leadership as much as anyone else. I got a sneaking suspicion if they'd been in Charlotte Chapel, they would have been at least another five years getting grounded in the Word before we risked them doing anything. Maybe I'm wrong, and you can correct me at the door, if no doubt you will. But you see, when, when Jesus called these disciples to follow him, do you remember what he said? He said, if you've been in this series, you, 
You remember, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We emphasize the following bit, don't we? Come and follow Jesus. It's great. But it doesn't mean you're just following and doing nothing else. It means that when you follow Jesus, he then equips you to serve him. Let me challenge some of you here. Some of you have been following Jesus a long time. Are you serving Jesus? Are you a fisher of men and women? Are, are you involved in evangelism? Are you seeking to reach people for Christ? You say, oh, I couldn't do that, Pastor. I, I don't know enough yet. I've only been in Charlotte Chapel 25 years. Try, try, me, try, try me in another decade. Now, I realize this is a unique situation that Jesus the Son of God, the Master Teacher, a year with His disciples, counts for an enormous amount. But listen, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the full Scriptures. God wants to equip us to go out and to serve Him. And so Jesus sends them out on this particular mission. Uh, note three things briefly about it before we come to the main point, the point I want to emphasize the rejection. I've listed them in words. First of all, company sends them out two by two. Rather than sending them as a whole group, or singly, Jesus sends them out two by two for mutual support and accountability. It's a pattern that was developed in the early church. You think of the missionary journeys of Paul with Barnabas and then Paul and Silas. Barnabas then went off with Mark and they worked together in teams. It's good to work together with other people. Secondly, they were given authority, we read, over evil spirits. Jesus sends them out into enemy territory. The only way they can succeed is to have a greater authority than the enemy powers they will encounter. And Jesus alone has this authority which he then delegates to them. It's an authority they use to good effect. We read in verse 13, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And of course, if you're a Christian, you'll know that that final authority has been given to all the followers of Jesus. Before Jesus left earth, he commissioned his disciples in what's called the Great Commission. I remind you again, it's not the Great Suggestion, it's the Great Commission said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is our calling, our authority, given to us by Jesus. Without it, defeat is certain. With it, victory is assured. Notice the third feature, which I would call urgency. That is, take nothing for the journey. They're only to take the basic necessities, no luxuries, just the bare essentials for travel, relying on the hospitality of those they visit, relying on God. Now, these detailed instructions are not a manual for missionaries or the specifics of what they're to take with them and how they're to live. Rather, they're appropriate to this particular short-term mission in which they, like Jesus, are announcing that God's kingdom has arrived. This is a, an important moment, the crucial key moment in human history. And people need to get ready. Uh, many people see echoes in the talk of the sandals and the staff back to the story of the Exodus, when the people of Israel were warned to be ready to leave, when God would take them out of Egypt, they were to be ready at a moment with their sandals and staff and get ready to move. But it does emphasize for us, though the details may not be the same, that we have a mission that is a mission of great urgency. You think of when there's a flood warning in an area, a river is rising, and the local officials go around with vans and they knock on people's doors and they say, they go from house to house. They don't hang around trying to persuade people at great length about the merits of moving out. They say, this is a warning, unless you get out of here, the flood waters are rising. Your house will be swamped. You could possibly be drowned. Do something about it. 
And we need to have that same sense of urgency rather than complacency about the work of the Gospel. The Apostle Paul demonstrated it in his own life. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you, we plead with you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Can I say that I think we need to recapture a sense of urgency about the work in which we're involved as Christians? The kind of general malaise and complacency that, you know, things will work out eventually and, you know, we've, we've got time. We have only one life. Let's use it to the full with a sense of urgency. So the twelve are sent out, but I believe it's significant that Jesus warns them that they won't receive a welcome everywhere. He gives them a warning. If any place will not receive you, he says you have to move on. And by a symbolic act, they have to shake the dust off their feet, off their sandals, as they leave. As a testimony, a sign that the people have rejected the king and do not wish to become citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Now, just as the rejection of Jesus in Nazareth was a picture of his greater and final rejection, so is the rejection of his followers a picture of the final rejection that they and we will face. If you've got a Bible, turn over to uh, John's Gospel and you'll see that very clearly. Uh, Keep your finger in Mark 6, we'll come back to it. Um, John 15, verse 18. It's page 1083 if you have a pew Bible. And this is Jesus before his death preparing his disciples for his departure. And notice what he says in verse 18. And notice these words are addressed to his disciples. They're addressed to us as well, if we could only listen and hear what he says. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen these miracles, yet they have hated both me and my father. This is to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without reason. Then he speaks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Over the page in uh, chapter 16, he says, All this I have told you, so you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you'll remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now, Jesus, of course, is speaking to his disciples about what's going to happen. But the principles in that are the same. He's talking about future rejection. He says the servant is like his master in how we are treated, And the reason is because of what we teach. Notice what Jesus taught when he began his own mission. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Notice back again, if you've still got your finger in there, go back to Mark 6, you will see we only learn one thing about what these twelve disciples preached about. Do you see it there? In Mark chapter 6, they went out and preached that people should repent 
Now again, there's a very important point for all of us here. See, people want good news and the gospel is good news. But you can't receive the good news until you hear the bad news. And the bad news is that you're heading in the wrong direction and you need to turn around. You cannot turn to Christ until you turn away from sin. You need to repent. I think repentance, and the word repent is probably one of the most neglected words today in our generation. To repent. And it raises some serious questions about us and our churches and this particular church. And I leave two with you this morning. First question is this. How are we treated? How are we treated? Just coming in the car this morning, I switched on the news and one of the main items on the news was that uh, one of the main supporters of the Labour Party for the last 40 years has handed in his resignation. Do you know what he said the reason was? He said because Tony Blair wants to be popular. Interesting, isn't it? I guess his point is that, I don't make any political point about it, but his point is that because he wants to be popular, he's not prepared to adopt unpopular policies. Now, I think it's possible to be a popular politician. I have grave doubts whether it's possible to be a popular preacher as far as the world is concerned. If you're looking for popularity or honour from the world, then don't become a Christian or join a church. And if anyone promises you popularity or honour by becoming a Christian, then they're not offering you what Jesus offered his disciples. And this is, of course, tied in with the second question, which is, what do we teach? We cannot avoid a call to repentance. It is absolutely essential. You have to repent and believe. You cannot do one without the other. I think, think for example, think of the Apostle Paul on that missionary journey, and he has this unenforced stopover, as they would call it, in the city of Athens. Great city, full of incredible statues and temples and we read as he walks around he sees it and he's moved in his heart he's so upset by this and he's invited to appear before the the Athenian ruling council the Areopagus now what would you say in those circumstances well you'd kind of butter them up a bit first wouldn't you and say men of Athens as I walked around I saw these fantastic buildings and I thought this is the home of philosophy what a privilege for me to be here I really do appreciate it and uh, thank you for your opportunity to speak to this august body and so on and so forth he says to them your city is full of idols and you don't know God you're ignorant and then he says this in the past God overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. It wasn't a popular received message in Athens. Only a handful of people responded to his message. But popularity and success are not the marks that the master looks for in his servants. So what about us? How we treated. Finding it tough to be a Christian. Having to speak occasionally, maybe regularly, and say things that other people don't agree with. Or to live in such a way that challenges other people about the way that they live because you won't join in with it. You popular? 
I would suggest to you, you don't, you don't need to go out of your way to become unpopular. If you live like Jesus lived, in the way that he lived, Jesus said, they'll treat you the way they treated me. Can it be clearer, really? Or, or they, they may say they respect you, and whatever it might be, but you will be unpopular. And what do we teach? Do we say to people, you need to turn from your sin. You need to leave that behind if you're to follow Christ. So notice thirdly and finally, we're almost at the end. Well, third point anyway. Um, the story of the death of John the Baptist. And I want to look at it from a particular perspective, what I might call a case study in rejection. Uh, we read on in Mark's Gospel in verse 14 following, uh, that the effect of the apostolic mission and the name of Jesus comes to the ears of Herod Antipas, who's the ruler of Galilee. Mark calls him a king. I think he, Matthew and Luke call him what he really was. He was what's called a tetrarch, which means a ruler of a third part. His father was the great, well, he thought he was. He was the, Herod the Great, as he called himself. And he delegated, when he died, he parceled out his kingdom to three parts. And, and the ruler of each part was called a tetrarch. But Mark, I think, is being somewhat sarcastic here and calls him a king because Herod wanted to be called a king and eventually, this is a long story, but eventually he went up to Rome to ask them to make him a king and they said, forget it, son, and sent him off into exile. But anyway, that was sometime in the future. At this particular point, this is Herod Antipas. And he hears about Jesus because Jesus is operating in Galilee, which is his, his area of control. And everybody's saying, well, who is this man? Opinions that he might have. Some people say he's Elijah, you know, the last of the great prophets. Uh, Malachi promised that Elijah would come before the end of time. And others said, no, he's just another prophet. But there was another kind of rumor going around. People said, it's John the Baptist come back from the dead. And when Herod heard that, he was very afraid. And then Mark backtracks and tells us the story of what happened to John the Baptist and what Herod did. And I simply want to suggest to you that here we see two sides in these two characters, Herod and John the Baptist, the two sides of rejecting God's word and God's messenger. John the Baptist is the messenger rejected. See, what did John preach about? Repentance. Said to people, the act is laid at the root of the trees. God's wrath is coming. It's time to repent and get ready. So people got baptized by him in the River Jordan. And John's message of repentance wasn't a kind of vague, woolly sort of message, you know, you need to give up all the wrong things you're doing. He directed it at individuals. If you read Matthew's account in Matthew 3, you read what he said to soldiers and tax collectors and ordinary people. And he had something to say to Herod. You read in verse 18, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Uh, royal scandals are nothing new. Uh, Herod, this Herod, there's also Sir Herod's, but this one anyway, uh, was married to someone called Herodias. But he wasn't originally married to Herodias. He was married to someone else and he went on a stopover on a visit and stayed with his brother Philip and took a fancy to Philip's wife who was called Herodias, who was also his niece at the same time. Very complicated, these stories. And he decided that he wanted her instead of his wife. So he got rid of his wife and he took his brother's wife away and married Herodias. I don't know what the tabloids made of it in those days. I certainly have a field day today. But John the Baptist said, and he didn't just say it once, he kept on saying it, this is wrong. And Herodias didn't like it. And so, as we've seen with rejection, he suffered the consequences. He was put in prison. 
John is an example of someone who is rejected because of the message of repentance. And Herod is an example of someone who rejects God's word. It's one of these strange characters. We read about Herod that he feared John so much so that he protected him. Even though he put him in prison, he was probably, most people believe, was in a terrible place in a dungeon uh, in a fortress way up on the Dead Sea in a place called Machiris and he was in the lower dungeon down there. You can still apparently go there and see it's supposed to be the place where he was presumably incarcerated. He feared John, but at the same time, he liked to listen to him. You may think this is very strange, but if you've been around in church life and if you've been a pastor, you'll discover that there are people like Herod today. They kind of have a love-hate relationship with the gospel. On the one hand, they don't want to hear it and don't want to be told that what they're doing is wrong. But on the other hand, they've got a respect for it and they kind of like to hear it as well. But years ago, we had a neighbour about three doors along. Me to remember, a young Welshman, and he said to me, what do you do? I said, no, the pastor, he said, oh, I love now and then to go along and hear a good, rousing sermon. He went to church in his life. You know, but occasionally he probably would go and he thought this was a nice thing, you know, to do this. But it made no effect upon him. And you see, I want to say, if you're that kind of person, there will come a time when you have to choose. When you'll be put on the spot about Jesus. What happened to Herod? Terrible story. Herodias had a daughter, not by Herod, by the other guy. And she, Herod's birthday party. Combination of drink, alcohol, lust, and erotic dance. And in the spur of the moment, with all these guests here, he says, come over here, dear, I'll give you anything you want, even the half of the kingdom. She says, hang on a minute, I'll ask my mother. What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now he's put on the spot, because it's going to cost him. Either Herod will lose his, either Herod will lose face, or John will lose his head. And you know the story. What happened? Greatest of all prophets, his life ended at the whim of a vindictive woman and a weak-willed man. There are no last words recorded of John. But Herod doesn't have the last word. You see. Mark tells us about this and he says Herod's conscience is still troubled. He's still worried about what he did. He knows that what he did was wrong. He still fears that Jesus might be John come back again. But although Jesus is not John, he is Herod's judge. Although Herod doesn't realise it. There's a tragic end to this story. When Jesus is on trial for his life, if you know the story in the Gospel, he appears before Pilate. Pilate hears he comes from Galilee. And Pilate doesn't want to make a decision about Jesus either. And he says, oh, well, in that case, you come into the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. And he sends him off to Herod. And when he sends him to Herod, Herod says, oh, that's great. I've been really wanting to meet this Jesus because I hope he'll do a miracle. It's one of the few people in the Bible of whom it's recorded that Jesus had nothing to say to him. Not a word. Why? Too late. His opportunity had gone. It dithered about Jesus. And in the end, it was too late. Now, two final lessons, and this really is fun. Learning from Herod. In his commentary on Mark, Sinclair Ferguson comments, The lesson is crystal clear. 
unless we silence sin sin will silence conscience unless we heed God's word the day may come when we despise God's son then God will have nothing to say to us that's a terrible thing to so reject God's word that in the end God has nothing to say to us if you can sit and hear the gospel and it doesn't touch you at all you're in danger God is speaking to you respond while he can because you don't choose when to come to Christ he calls when he chooses and Herod is a terrible warning the danger of rejecting Christ maybe today in this church God is speaking to someone I don't use this, say this idly who knows it may be a last opportunity to respond to the call of Christ I don't mean you go out of here and get run over by a bus on Princess Street you may live another 40 years and never again hear God speak to you I don't know but the scripture says today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts but respond that's the lesson from Herod finally a lesson from John the Baptist another writer David Garland comments when Jesus calls us he sends us out he does not promise a successful career or protection from sickness ordeals or tyrants we do not always get to choose where we will go it may be to next door it may be to death's door in order to be of service to Christ and to others we must die to ourselves this is our theme for the year Charlotte Chapel pastor, elders, deacons, members, whoever you are. Our theme for this year, our verse for the year, is the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the cost of being a Christian. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in exchange for his soul? that's the challenge that's the choice and if we're following Christ expect rejection in this life but look forward to his approval now and in eternity let's pray together